Okay. Too much horror business Driving late at night Psycho 78 Greetings and salutations. My name is Welcome Justin Moore. Liam O'Donnell. <laughs> Liam. My name is Liam. <laughs> Liam's my name. And you are listening to episode 45 of Horror Business. Horror Business. We're in the business of horror times. I, we do horror, horror in your face, and you better watch that, your back. Is that our Miami, our Miami, Miami Connection song? <laughs> yeah, that does kind of sound like yeah. a movie. Look, here's the deal. I'm against the ninja, okay? Yeah. I assume you're against the ninja. Of course. And if you're listening to this and you're not against the ninja... Why don't you get fucked? Yeah, how about you uh, walk into an open sewer? Yeah. I don't, I'm not afraid of you or your cocaine gang, Ninja. I am. I'm afraid of cocaine gangs. <laughs> Gold records. I'm very terrified of gangs who traffic in cocaine. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about two classic haunted house movies, arguably the classic haunted house Whoa. movies. No, not the classic. You think so? Uh... We're going to be talking about 1976, 1976's Burnt Offerings mm. and 1980's The Changeling. I think that these are like the two uh, – I mean people are like – like you say, like what's the, what's the best haunted house movie? People are like – House on Haunted Hill. Poltergeist. Uh, I was going to go with – those are all like the, the – the, uh, What's – no. Uh, uh, fuck. Hammer Horror. Anything with Hammer Horror ever. The made. Haunting? Oh, yeah. The haunting is so good. Um, no, I was thinking of um, – I can't remember. Never Amityville remember. Horror? No, but there's another one. Uh, that's like deep cut and it's fake. That's <laughs> not a deep cut and it's fake. I was going to say, it's definitely not a deep cut. No, I mean, not that these movies are deep cuts, but these movies are like... Um, I, w- okay, I put to you... Put it to me. These movies are Ooh, the... You're putting it to me so good. These movies are the chorus of disapproval to the Amityville Horror and House on Haunted Hills minor threat. Like, Fred Durst knows about minor threat. But you got to be not a poser to know about these movies. I actually, yeah, I'll accept that. I think they're uh, these are the sorts of movies that like your casual horror fan might not know. I, I guess the changeling. Is, this might actually be an age thing. Like to me, they're like, uh, like to me, the changeling's like, a, oh, you've heard of the changeling. But if we were older, maybe because I mean, George C. Scott's in it. Yeah, yeah. Age. I'm sure if you were a little bit older, you're like, oh, of course, the changeling, but. Um, it's one of those films that hasn't stuck around in the consciousness of people outside of like actual horror fans. I was going to say this is uh, this is Amy Wickham from the Final Girls. This is her favorite movie of all time. Whoa. And Burnt Offerings is a friend of the podcast. I don't know if this is his favorite horror movie, but this is a movie that had him shook as a kid, and he's actually the one who kind of pushed this movie into my uh, into my circle originally. Well, also, uh, you know who loves this movie is. Um... And Spina. Ah, yes. Yeah, she burnt every, offerings. Every time we put, po- every time I post anything about burnt offerings, she's like, "Oh yeah, I love that." Oh, you know what I was thinking of? Legend of Hell House. Mm, by Richard Classic. Matheson. Yes. Classic. Rest in peace. All right. Before we go any further, this episode is brought to you by you, and by you I mean our Patreon subscribers. Thank you so much to anyone and everyone who has, out of the kindness of their hearts donated to our patreon it is so greatly appreciated that 
uh, I am not quite the wordsmith to put that gratitude into words. So I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to say thank you very much. Thank you to anyone who's donated to us. I mean, even thank you to anyone who's retweeted or told a friend or given us a nice review or anything like that. We really appreciate it. I'm not going to say, you know what? If you've retweeted us, you owed us that because we're that awesome. I may or may not agree with that statement. <laughs> but I, I will say thank you to our Patreon subscribers, but mostly the ones who are above $10. If you only give us $5, come on. No, thank I'm you to kidding. everyone. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't even maintain that. No, thank you to um, all of our Patreon subscribers, everyone who uh, has left us some good, some of them, them their good reviews. Yes. Um, tweeted about us, let their friends know, bought a t-shirt. I like when I go on Facebook and Har Groups and people say, what are some good podcasts? And people I don't know say Har Business. I like that. Who? What people you don't know? Uh, I, I don't know their names. I feel like an <laughs> asshole. But this, I mean, let me be clear. That's happened maybe three times at this point. It, that's not like something I go on. It's not like I log on Facebook every day and see that. But it's happened enough where I'm like, oh, that's very nice. So thank you. Every day. Every fucking day. second of every day is, is a living hell. That's not what I meant to say. <laughs> uh, so thank you. To our Patreon people. I sent some stuff out in the mail to some of you guys, so you yeah. should be getting that Monday or Tuesday. Yeah. Um, if you need something, if you want something... Get at us. Get at us. We got shirts. We got various flyers and posters. I got a bunch of fucking promo discs. I'm sure a lot of them are bad. You should send I them tried, out. I tried to get Justin Lord to review some of them. He I just, reviewed... He wouldn't do it. I did... I reviewed two of them, and they were both so bad... I actually have a stack of them next to my bed that I'm always like, I, I got to get rid of these. I got to give them back to Liam because I don't just want them anymore. Them, just bring them to your store. See if <sighs> someone will buy them. Trick them into buying Be like, yo, these are only a dollar. Yeah. Here, take take the child eater. Uh, oh, uh, uh, People like that movie, though. That's funny you picked that <sighs> I don't one. Even, I don't want to talk about it. Um, but yeah, hit us up. We'd like to hook you up with some stuff. Some swag. Yeah. Some Johns. This episode is also brought to you by the quote-unquote, fine, quote-unquote, folks at Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations, the premier screen printing company of the Lehigh Valley area. Now, if you do some sort of creative project, be it a podcast, be it a bird-watching society, be it, I don't know... Uh, ska band. A, <laughs> you always go back to ska. It always goes back to ska bands with you. I assume most of our audience is ska. I hope so. Skanking pickles so if you're if, if, if you're if you're a fan of the gherkins of the slow variety and you need something printed i'm not even talking about yeah. shirts i'm talking like if you need like if you're just like a like an entry-level band if you're like an entry-level straight edge band in a garage right now in like quakertown and you really like verbal assault okay and you want pins made to get the word out. This isn't like the late 90s, early 2000s. Nobody does this anymore. People do pins still. Pins do they? are still a thing. Okay. Yeah. So if you need pins, they'll make pins. Uh, maybe you are part of a sex club and you want pillowcases. We can print pillowcases. We print pillowcases. I'm not going to touch that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, if you need if you need anything, if you need sweatpants, sweatpants, swants. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, maybe uh, maybe sweat shorts. Sweat shorts, sleeveless hoodies, mosh shorts, Doctor Seuss hats, tamoshin, mosh hats. <laughs> How great would it be if that was the next, like, fashion? Mosh hats? Hardcore, like, Dr. Seuss hats. Oh, my God. I'd be so happy. Uh, as long as they're not um, do-rags, that would bum me out. Yeah, there was a phase where kids were doing that a few years ago. It was a little bit problematic. Yeah, man. A little, like, suburban white kids, like, wearing do-rags and, and being hard. Mm. Oh. Sorry. 
Just because you like Marauder doesn't mean you're tough. No, this is uh, the, one of the things you have to remind people in hardcore is that tough is not a transitive property. No, no, it's it not is. like you order a bad ball shirt and, and then it you're shows tough. up and then you're tough. Yeah, like that's not how that. It's works. not how it works. So, uh, problematic suburban white kids aside, if you need something printed and you need something printed well and you need something printed at uh, an unreasonably cheap price, I'll say. Insanely, uh, insane. unfairly. Yeah. In fact, when you order stuff, just go ahead and add an extra dollar. Yes. Just for my sake. Just for Liam's sake. Well, for Maeve's sake. For my If you don't Maeve. give a fuck about Liam, that's fine. I don't really care either. But Maeve. I care about Maeve. She's very beautiful. She's very be- She's a very good, very good. And Suze. Liam puts the, he's putting food on the table. So if you need all that, if you are intrigued by what we just said, you can go check out the website at www.xlvacx.com. That is www.xlvacx.com. The X's are there because Chris could not get the rights to www.lvac.com, so he added the X's because he is a poser because he is not, never has been, and I would wager money on never will be, straight edge. Never. You don't know that. I'm pretty sure I do. I'll know much. I don't know much, but I'm pretty sure I know that. Chris, I still have hope for you to one day find the edge. <laughs> you couldn't see it. I just grotesquely rolled my eyes at that statement <laughs> as I opened a Diet Dr. Pepper. Uh, so now we come to the segment in this... Sponsor of the program. Sponsor of the program. Diet, 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 Dr. Diet. Pepper, yes. The sweet one. Uh, I, I now get to ask Liam, Liam, have you done anything horror related recently? You know, I haven't done a whole lot. You know, uh, as folks know, I have a baby. I talk about her too much. I'm sorry. But uh, I do. So it's hard to get to stuff. But I did manage just to see a couple of things. One of the things, and this one is a, this is a, a, a warning. You know, uh, you all know I do a, a po- another podcast. Uh, Eric Roberts is the fucking man. Mm-hmm. It's the only podcast I do that's not on the Cinepunks podcast network because Doug Tilly is a motherfucker. <laughs> And if I ever see him again, I'll punch him in his balls for not just moving his podcast to my jam. Anyway, point being, hmm. for that particular podcast, uh, we watch Eric Roberts movies, and many of these movies are bad. And a chunk of them are horror films. And I don't usually bring them up because they're not good and I don't whatever. But this one was so bad, I want to bring it up just to let you know in case you ever... I don't know why you would, but if you ever are tempted to watch it. It's a little movie called Scavenger... Hunters. Scavenger Hunters. I'm sorry. Scavenger Killers. Scavenger, Scavenger killers. killers. So this is what it is. Uh, it's a movie in which there's a couple. Uh, she's a lawyer. He's a judge. And this is, this is a good cover for them as they are killers. They just kill people. And they're already just killing rando people. But then they decide to make it like a scavenger hunt. Okay. Sort of thing. But it's not really a scavenger hunt because in order to be a scavenger hunt, you need clues. This is more, we've put the names of various kinds of people in a bag, and we're going to pull them out, and then that's who we're going to kill. And mm. Eric Roberts plays an FBI agent. This movie is so offensive, just beyond just awful. And it was so offensive that Doug then did research to figure out who are the monsters who made this movie. And the guy, one of the guys who wrote the movie is in the movie. He plays a, uh, a, a mute FBI agent who is in a wheelchair and the whole movie he does an offensive caricature of sign language just next level terrible and that gentleman who has started as a screenwriter went on to direct a number of films uh that are of the conservative propaganda variety interesting he's he's got a whole bunch of stuff that's real bad 
just real, real bad. Oh, he made a Blue Lives Matter movie. Oh, this movie that you're watching was from 2014. Scavenger Killer? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's terrible. And it was it was written by Ken Del Vecchio? Del Vecchio is our man. Hey. He's a real piece of well, work. He looks like a piece of work. Oh, he's the fucking worst. His IMDb critically acclaimed filmmaker who has written, produced, and directed nearly 30 feature films. Oh. 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 Oh, he made a movie called Life Zone. Price for Freedom, mm-hmm. The Great Fight, which has a white kind of black guy beating the fuck out of each other on the front. Oh, yeah. And then, uh, oh, my God. Oh, yeah, I don't want to talk about this guy anymore. But, yeah, keep, 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 keep going. So, okay, sorry. The point is, is I bring it up to tell you, if you're someone who scours the internet for horror, I know a lot of people are those people, and you will watch stuff just to check it out and give it a chance. And I support that, actually. I support... Uh, giving your time and energy to low-budget horror. This movie is so terrible. Don't watch it. <laughs> Don't pay for it. Don't give this fucking monster any of your money. I love Eric Roberts. I wish Eric Roberts was always in good movies, but many times he's in terrible... Most of the time he's in terrible movies. And sometimes those movies are so terrible, I get mad at him. And so this movie left me mad at Eric Roberts. Because of Because of this? What was the movie he did that about Obama? Oh, you're you're talking about um something. I don't remember the name of it. O B A M nude. Yeah, Obama nude. Jesus Christ. Anywho, avoid that movie. However, yeah. I did also watch a movie that I don't think you should avoid. This is a little thing called Ghost Stories. Tell me about this. So this is a British film. Came out recently. I think IFC Midnight might have picked it up. Okay. Uh, I don't know if it's on... I think it's on Shudder. I didn't watch it on Shudder, but I think... Maybe it's on Shudder or it's going to be on Shudder. Okay. Sure. Uh, but it's got... Uh, what's the name of the gentleman? British actor who was in Black Panther. He was the... Oh, uh, Bilbo. Yes, Martin Martin Freeman. Martin Freeman is in it. Yeah, um, and then a number of British actors who I recognize, but I couldn't tell you their names. Mm. And uh, it's basically a gentleman is a debunker of various things. You know, okay, sort of, the sort of person that would give your favorite people a run for their money. My favorite people. Yeah, you know your your favorite shysters. Uh, you know, your friends from Amityville and... The oh, Contra. the Warrens! Yeah, his, he's basically a dude who spends his life finding kinds of Warrens. I like this guy. He's like a Joe Nickel. Them. Yeah. So he goes to meet with a guy who sort of inspired him to be this person. Okay. Who's like on his deathbed. And this dude is like, here are three cases that I can never solve. And he's like, what do you mean you can never solve? He's like, I think these three cases prove that there is supernatural and that I was wrong. My whole life's work was a, was a waste. So this guy goes to investigate these three cases. Various supernatural shenanigans occur. Yada, yada. It's called uh, Ghost Stories. Ghost Stories. I like it. I'm not going to spoil anything for anyone. I will say, if you are someone who is averse to, um, I wouldn't say trick endings, mm. but sort of things that wrap up in almost the kind of snarky gotcha kind of way. Mm. This movie is not for you. Oh, man. The level of condescension of the ending of this movie is like, whoo, quality. Um, I will say, if you're someone who's worried about watching this movie because um, the premise, which you know, anytime, it, anytime a horror movie is, 
a guy who debunks the supernatural finds those cases that are hard to debunk, you know that the movie is going to make that guy look like an asshole. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. The whole point. You, if you watched it and that wasn't what happened, then you're like, why did I watch this movie? This yes. is a horror movie. So you know that's the direction it's going to go. So I was hoping it would nail the landing, even though I'm sympathetic to those sorts of folks. I was like, yeah, stick it out, nail it, man, nail it. Like, make this guy look like an asshole. And the way it ends is. I I personally thought it was very cool, but it allows them to not do that. It okay. allows them to not necessarily make a definitive claim one way or the other. Interesting. So I don't want to completely ruin it for you and tell you what happens. I, I think it'll be a surprise, even knowing there is something coming. You won't see what's coming, because I certainly fucking didn't. And part of the way that it ends is so emotionally brutal let me be clear about that emotionally brutal this is not a gore movie there's not a lot of blood and guts or whatever but there is a scene in the movie that uh fucked me up emotionally so hmm. that was enough for me to care uh i do think we talked about this a little bit when we talked about fallen yes for me this is a fallen style ending only unlike the fallen style ending it doesn't fuck up the rest of the movie gotcha. it actually works to a certain extent okay but i could see someone being so annoyed at that kind of ending that they're like fuck this movie i would not in fact if that's how you feel you saw it and you were like i hate that ending i'm okay with that i get that but for me i was like <laughs> all right that's fine i like i like that that that's that's what your reaction was yeah it was kind of like uh what it, it, it it's like uh you know your uncle does something to fuck with you and sometimes it's just annoying, and sometimes you're like, all right, you got, you got me that time. Yeah. That's what I felt like. It ended, and I went, all right, you got me. No, yeah, that was Interesting. Good. Yeah. And there were a couple of scares in it that were effective. There were a couple of moments that you could technically call them jump scares, only they weren't cheap. They were actually like, oh, shit, I didn't expect that. To, like, actually unexpected things. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, something's going to jump out now. It's and then, like, yeah. Actually, a calm moment, and then there's a hand or something, or so you know, there are a few moments Ooh. like that where you're like, Oh, okay, oh, well, all right, sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I liked it. Okay, anyways, so those are the two things I did horror wise. What else is it? Oh, I guess we didn't talk about VHS Fest. No, we yet. did VHS Fest. Did we talk about that already? No, because it was we, we we haven't recorded since then. Okay, so that was one thing we did. We saw we went to VHS Fest and saw Hackle Lantern, aka Halloween Night. And uh, I'll be honest, I enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. But that doesn't mean it was a good movie. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Here's here's how I would put it to you. I was laughing more than I was scared. Yes, but I would pay not full price for the Blu-ray. I would buy the. I would own this movie, but I would not pay more than ten dollars to. Mm, if it came into my shop for free, maybe. <sighs> All right, I enjoyed it more than you then. I definitely would pay money for it. I just wouldn't pay. I think when I looked it up, it was like $25. And I was like, Jesus Christ. Come on. No. But no, that was VHS fun. Was VHS Fest was fun. Big ups to, we met a lot of people there. So yes, the talked to a lot of people. That was cool. Whether you like Hacker Lantern or not, people are. Yeah. Cool. We didn't stick around for, uh, what was, what was the, there was Blood Diner at the very end. And then there was, what was the one in the middle? wild betty oh yes 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 i don't know i didn't yeah i don't know yeah we left after it was a long day it was long uh so yeah if anyone who came up and said what's up to us we met some cool people there that was very it was fun it was very hot but you know that's what happens i wasn't that hot it was a little hot um i haven't done anything horror related 
Other than Hackle Lantern, you haven't done anything? I have not done anything horror related. Wow, you watch a lot of horror movies in your free time. What happened? I mean, I've been working on the whatchamacallit for the podcast a lot. I've been reading... Um... Side note, I take that back. The Hant- Hackle Lantern Blu-ray is actually thirty four ninety one. Uh, I don't know if I talked about it in the last episode, but I read The Outsider by Stephen King. No, you didn't talk about that. Talk oh, about that. Well, it was great. It was, you know, classic Stephen King. Um, had vague it vibes because it involves like child murder. Had kind of a weak ending, but that's what, you know, Stephen King's weak spot is. But no, I mean, I, I definitely recommend it. It, it kind of classic Stephen King. I, you know, I read it in like three days. It's like 500 pages. Bought it on a whim. Uh, so if I, I can definitely recommend if you're looking for something to read, I would definitely say read The Outsider by Stephen King. I'm definitely curious about it. I mean, uh, you know, it's hard for me to read lately. It's like hard to make time for that. Um, but when I do read, I think Stephen King is more in my alley than like French philosophy or yeah. history of whatever. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, when I have a bandwidth, it's, it's probably got to be a novel or else I'm going to like fall asleep. Yes. That's just like where I'm at right now. No offense to you if you love French philosophy. I love French philosophy, but I'm just in the mo- m- mode right now where I just can't. My brain just isn't up for that sort of thing. Justin's making a face because Justin only likes American analytic philosophy. I was going to say, we, we argue about it off mic all the time. Having, having a philosophy degree has kind of ruined my desire to ever read any philosophical text ever again. So, when, Do you have a philosophy degree? Yeah. I didn't know that. Full of philo- it's specifically in religious studies, but yeah. So it's like a philosophy of religion. Yeah. So what were you reading in philosophy of religion? Uh, I read a lot of uh, a lot of stuff on Islam and like uh, oh. Chinese religion or oh, Chinese cool. philosophy. So, I because I was when I when I think of philosophy of religion stuff, I think of a number of people that actually are related to what we do in horror. So like if you're reading uh, like Bataille, then like, no, there I think was a lot of Bataille relates to horror and things. That I didn't I didn't read any when it came to when it came to like. Uh, christianity i think like i didn't there were no deep dives i think i read like tillich stuff like that you know <laughs> as someone who is very studied in jesus stuff and yeah not even philosophy of religion which i think is a different thing but in theology specifically the idea that you would read tillich is like anytime i talk to anyone who's done they're like oh, i dipped into a little bit of theology whatever they're going to say is going to make me laugh because every known figure is so particular and not actually useful to yeah. you without the context like that's what i think is so funny when theologians i'm sorry we're totally off track we'll get back on track in a second <laughs> but when theologians try to argue that theology especially because they're usually white christian theologians when white christian theologians mostly men try to argue that theology is some sort of universal discourse i'm always like that's crazy it's so particular now don't be wrong i think it's not a waste of time because you can learn skills that are helpful. And in our particular context, a lot of what goes on in theology actually affects everything else. So yes. I think understanding theology actually allows you to understand the psychology of criminal justice. So yeah, like, yeah, yeah. The fact that we think we actually have to punish people is a completely theological concept. Yes. There's actually no logical reason to say, oh, you stole something. Now you have to go to prison. That, that there's no now to say now you have to repay this money or now you have to do work to help or, those would all have a logic to them yeah but yeah the logic of you've been a bad boy and now you have to pay the price that comes from christianity that's morality yeah that that's, is completely a christian concept yeah and it's not even i would say not even completely a christian concept in that it would come from the bible that's not what i'm saying at all i'm saying over the history of yeah. christian thought it's not even necessarily biblical per se but anyways sorry to go on a tangent there but i do think if you are someone who is 
curious about how horror works, especially because most of our horror is influenced by that we watch is based on the Western concepts. Yes, knowing something about religion is actually super helpful to understand why horror functions the way it does. I'd agree to that. I, I don't think it's necessary per se, but I know a lot of people who write about horror from an academic standpoint have read a number of philosophy of religion people who maybe are writing about Christianity, maybe they're writing not about Christianity, but they're in that context, so it influences what they write. You know, yeah. A lot of philosophy of religion people are trying to write universally, but they lived in Europe. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. they ended up writing about Christian shit. <laughs> anyway, so that's it. That's all you did. That was, I mean, you've done other horrifying things. I'm I've, sure. I, every day in my life is a horrifying thing. Well, you know what wasn't horrifying? What's that? When we got together to watch these two awesome movies. That I mean, that was technically horrifying. These movies are horrifying. That's true, but uh, it was cool. Too. Yes. It was also cool. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about 1976's Haunted House Masterpiece, Burnt Offerings. Burnt Offerings. We'll be right back. Okay, bye. It all began as a summer vacation. A young family found a beautiful old house. It had secluded, spacious grounds, a large swimming pool, magnificent furnishings. So you are the people who want to rent this house. What do you mean it's $900 and then, and then it's all ours? Well, there is one other thing. It's hardly a catch. They thought it was the answer to their dreams, but it was the beginning of a nightmare. In this old house, up this staircase, behind this locked door, something lives, something strange, something powerful, something evil. Stay away from that door! It will possess this woman. It will destroy this man. It will terrify this child. And no one can stop it. Burnt Offering, starring Karen Black. Have you actually tried to tell me that this house is responsible? Oliver Reed. This house is destroying us. Betty Davis. This house is getting so cold. Burgess Meredith. And this house will be here long, long after you have departed, you believe me? Eileen Heckert. God, when it comes alive, tell them about it. Tell them what it's like. This door lies a horror beyond imagination. Who is it? Where did it come from? What does it want? When you find out, it will be too late. Burnt offerings. And we are back to talk about 1976's Burnt Offerings. Burnt Offerings. Directed by Dan Curtis, who also directed numerous episodes of Kolchak the Night Stalker and Intruders, a 1992 miniseries based on the book of the same name by Bud Hopkins about alien abductions. I just had to yell that. Uh, it stars 
Burgess Meredith, who you might know from a little movie called Rocky. Other movies too. But Other movies, but Rocky primarily. Rocky, he was also in The Sentinel. That's all I got for Burgess Meredith. Jesus Christ. Uh, Karen Black, who was in House of a Thousand Corpses, the trilogy of Terror, Invader Samars, and Easy Rider, and then horror business favorite, the one, the only, motherfucking Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed. Now, Oliver Reed. The premise of this movie did a lot of thinking about this movie. All right. So the plot of this movie is basically there's this family. Oliver Reed, Karen Black, and their son, whose name I don't know and it's not important. Uh, Also, Bette Davis is in this movie. I didn't write that down. Bette Davis is also in this movie. Uh, They are a family. They rent a house out in the country. Uh, It's this huge gothic mansion. Uh, And they rent it from Burgess Meredith and his sister. And it's like a ridiculously cheap price. And like, but there's one condition: you must give our mother her her thrice daily meals and never bother her. And uh, they start doing that, and all this like weird, terrifying shit starts to happen. Uh, well, pretty early on, they show that the house improves when people are hurt. Yes, yeah, it, it's it's when when there when there's misery and there's suffering and there's just negative emotions, the house. It's this like it's like tastefully dilapidated when they first get there, but as as the movie progresses, there are scenes where the house is literally rebuilding itself while they're inside of it. Uh, the effects are a little dated, but it's still it's still kind of terrifying. But this is like your basic, like a classic haunted house movie, uh, and I think one of the things that I like most about this is I think this movie. I'll say this right off the bat: this movie. I think succeeds in a way that a movie, similar movie, uh, you know, released a little bit later, The Shining fails. I think this movie succeeds where The Shining fails in that, like, it portrays Oliver Reed as a man who's being sort of broken down by this entity, this house or whatever, and he's going from, like, a loving father into a complete maniac. Still trying to process the idea that The Shining fails. It fails in this aspect. Jack Nicholson is never a nice guy in The Shining. Okay, okay, Jack Nich- that's fair. Jack that's Nicholson fair. is never a caring father in The Shining. He's always got that underlying sense of like menace and insanity to begin with. So when he finally just like makes the the fucking switch, also it fails to adapt the fucking spirit of Stephen King's book. Go to hell. Anyway, I would like to say that everything Justin is saying is not the official opinion of Horror Business nor the Cinepunks Network, but it is the right opinion. Oh my god! Galileo was convicted by the Catholic Church for for heresy, <laughs> and I am Galileo at this moment. So anyway, uh, Jack Nicholson is never convincingly a caring father in that movie. So when he makes the switch to like bloodthirsty, you know, murderer. It's like he was that all along. It's not this big reveal where it's like this steady degradation of Oliver Reed from like caring father into not necessarily like murderous person, but like the breakdown he has is so much more convincing than Jack Nicholson. Even when it goes, even when he's in like his more unsavory moments, when he's like trying to hurt his son, when there's the pool scene in the beginning where he's like messing with his son or when he tries to rape his wife, there are still these moments where it's like, he has this like sort of like snapping out of it where it's like he's still a good guy and whereas Jack Nicholson in The Shining is just like a crazy person finally becoming a crazy person I think Oliver Reed really portrays in this movie a good man who is being driven to do terrible things by an external force 
Try not to get distracted by all your shining shades. That's nothing new. Don't act like it's anything new. I've said I've I've screamed that on the on the internet for years now. I know, but it's so incorrect. Okay, it's fine. It's fine. I don't care. It's fine. I'm fine. It's fine. I'm fine. Stephen King hates Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Well, okay. Side note about that is that um, the last interview I heard with him. He had a he had adjusted that opinion. Okay, okay. He in the sense that he he thinks it's he thinks it's a fine piece of cinema. He just is annoyed because it, as he said, misses the spirit of his book. That's my exact opinion. That's what I'm saying. I, I get that. But oh, Charles Darwin, re, re, but you know, recanted evolution on his deathbed. No, but I mean, in, in the sense that, like, he it doesn't hate it. He sees that it's still an amazing movie. You know, okay, and he, uh, you know, he uh, he talks a lot in that. Have you ever heard his interview with uh, Terry Terry Gross? No, and, uh, he talks a lot about how he feels like the main difference between him and Kubrick. Well, so his first interview, we talked about this. He thought the difference between him and Kubrick was that um, he believes he believed in hell, and Kubrick did not. Mm. And then later on, he was like, yeah, but I don't anymore, so it's fine. <laughs> so, Because Terry Gross was like, yeah, isn't this... Because you remember, there was that brief period after his accident. Where he was like, sort of like, Haha, there might, you know... He was vaguely religious. Yeah. And then in this interview, this was like, just a few years ago, Terry Gross, he was like, yeah, I'm not into that anymore. Well, yeah, I mean, when death breathe, breathes down your neck, maybe, you know, you think about things. But yeah. then when, you know, it's like, oh, that wasn't death, that was just an open window. <laughs> you know, you're sort of like, cool with it. Yeah. Anyways, sorry. Second um, second difference between Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick. Stephen King didn't drive Shelley Duvall into madness. <laughs> I still think The Shining is great, but that's fine. But but I will say this: um, there are things about burn offerings I think that stand out, and one of them I do think is Oliver Reed and his performance of. Uh, I mean, I think when he first shows up, you get. Mm, I don't want to put this submissive on Oliver Reed. The Oliver Reed we first get in the movie is this very cowed Oliver Reed. Uh, yes. And you don't see a lot of cowed Oliver Reed, or at least not in the things I've seen. No, he Oliver tends Reed. To be a little more blustery. Yes. Unless you've seen a little movie called Venom, in which uh, one Mr. Klaus Kinski makes Oliver Reed his little. Uh, uh, whipping boy. Yeah, but I'm not entirely convinced Klaus Kinski didn't pull a gun on Oliver Reed when the cameras weren't rolling and say, right. like, you know what I mean? Like, the whole, that's different. But the whole movie, he's just like, shut up, you little whining brat! And yeah. Oliver Reed's like, oh god, oh, there's a snake, oh my god! Like, he just is like so wussy. But for the most part, Oliver Reed is very blustery and very whatever. So in this film, it takes him a while to get there. He, he has some moments. Uh, unfortunately, some of his most Oliver Reed moments, or fortunately, I think actually because it works for the role, his, some of his most Oliver Reed moments are actually the moments where he's, I wouldn't say possessed, but he's pushed by the house yes. to be not himself. There's a scene in particular that I took a note about. There's a scene where him and his son are like playing in the pool, and they're like roughhousing, and Oliver Reed's like throwing him around, and then Oliver, there comes a point where Oliver Reed is literally holding his son underwater. He's trying to murder him. He's trying to murder him, and then he like his son steps up and is like, you know, trying to back away. And Oliver Reed comes at him, at, him, at him again, and his son just like whacks him in the face with a with a with goggles, and Oliver Reed is like bleeding from the nose, and he's just like he gives his son this look, 
before he like backs away. That is so chilling. Like to be a child and have seen Oliver Reed give you that look would have ruined me as a man. <laughs> Cause it is, it, I mean, I, I, I cannot emphasize enough the malice and the just fucking hatred in this look that he gives him. And then a few seconds later, he's like, Hey kid, I'm, I'm sorry about that. We're still friends, right? And the dad's like, Dad, don't ever do that again. He's like, I'll never do that again. And you're like, nah, it's Oliver Reed. He's back to being a good guy again. I So I, let's be clear about this uh, this plot here. We kind of give a vague thing. But from the beginning, there's there's time issues in the sense of this house has been here forever. And we're only presented with this one little family. Yeah. And immediately it's kind of like, okay, oh, what's going on with this house? And then before they even agree to move in... Their son hurts himself, and part of the house is nicer. And yes. So that's it's important to, to view. There's two things going on here. On one hand, the house is a parasite, and it it is getting nicer and nicer as the movie progresses, and it becomes clear that it's not just feeding off of their misery, but it's pushing them to be more unhappy and yes. to hurt themselves and to hurt each other. And the other thing that's happening, which is truly creepy, is uh, his wife, played by uh, Karen Black, is also transforming. And she's yes. starting to dress older and starting to act different. And she's claiming to have this relationship with this mother in the attic who we never see. We don't see once the entire movie. Well, not ne- until the very end. Never see yeah. ever. But she's, oh, and, you know, she's like this and that. And, that. and then it becomes clear the house has turned her into this woman. Yes. She, that the the mother lives as the house lives and it's just sort of renewed with each family that they eat and uh, this is brought home by the fact that outside of the mother's room which is empty or there's a ghost in there who the fuck knows there's all these pictures of men just men and children yeah men and children men and children just generations of men and children and that in and of itself you might not pick up. I didn't. The first time I saw it, I didn't pick up that that was weird. But the second, you know, this is actually the fifth time I've seen it. But the second time I saw it, I, I immediately got it like, oh, where are all the women? What's mm. going on? And I think there's an idea that for generations, people have stayed at this house. The house has taken the woman, the mom of the family. Yes. Turned her into the mom of the, ho- of the house, yeah. quote unquote. And. I guess destroyed the father and children. I mean, some of them are just one person, like an adult. Some of them are just children. There's Hollywood again, emasculating the the patriarchy. <laughs> oh yeah, da 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 da. <laughs> but the the point here is that this is a process, and so these people have just sort of wandered into a cycle of death, and even this idea that it's the house is has this relationship there's also a sense in which there is reality bending and this actually funny you brought up the shining was such a stephen king moment to me in that um how is the house going to strike terror into the heart of oliver reed well we're it's revealed that oliver reed has this traumatic memory from his mother's passing yeah he's at her funeral and he has an interaction with this chauffeur, chauffeur who's meant to just drive him to the funeral. And he conflates the terror around his mother's death with how creepy this fucking chauffeur is. And it's sort of burned into his memory. And I'm going to go on record and say that this chauffeur and the image of this chauffeur and all the scenes involving this chauffeur is in my top five most effective. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely like, I mean, when I'm talking like spooky imagery, I don't mean stuff that's like grotesque. I don't right. mean I don't mean like 
like uh, like Doctor Tongue in Day of the Dead, yeah, or Bill Skarsgård in it. I don't mean like grotesque. I I just mean the simple imagery of the black suit, yeah, the hat, yeah. the sunglasses, the mirrored sunglasses, and yeah. that really creepy smile. Just like, and it's shot all the all the angles from it are shot from a child's point of view, right? So it has this really really powerful way of just like. It, it, it's it's just there's something about it that it's very primal and it's chilling and do you think that um well first off do you think in the original memory uh-huh. this is like a two-part question do you think in the original memory that that chauffeur was that scary or that was all just oliver reed projecting do you think I, this man was actually that ominous and creepy where, like... I think he's just the sort of gentleman who is actually... He's trying to be nice. Okay. But in Oliver Reed's childhood memory, it's not that at all. It, it's terrifying. And I, and I think the guy really is creepy looking. Yes. And so the fact that he is creepy looking sort of exacerbates this. Um, but I think what is very Stephen King about it to me is this idea that the house... The house has nothing to do with the chauffeur. The house yeah. is not related to the chauffeur. The house doesn't have a relationship with the chauffeur in any way. And yet the chauffeur shows up now as part of this ominous sort of haunting of Oliver Reed. To just character. drive Oliver Reed down the road to insanity. Yeah. yeah. And uh, even when they show the chauffeur as Oliver Reed as an adult, it's shot in a way that makes you think of a child's point of view. Absolutely. And the fear that Oliver Reed feels is like this deep down. To me, that is such a Stephen King moment. The idea of like, I could just show you, because this happens a lot in Stephen King books. Whatever the bad thing is, it could just show you a monster with lots of teeth. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's afraid of a monster with lots of teeth. Yeah. But it's like, oh, remember that horrible thing your uncle did? Well, here's your uncle. Yeah, like that happens so often in Stephen King stories, and so that moment always struck me as, ooh, you know, sort of resonant with that, and that idea that the house is tapped into who they are. Yeah, it's not just um, coming at them as food, though that is literally it's eating them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it 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 is can it is reaching into their who they are to warp them in a certain way. And I, I think that this the, the chauffeur is 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 part of an equation that I that I've long held that. When it comes to horror movies, one of the scariest possible images you can show is someone who is in the grips of real terror. Yeah. The facial expressions of someone who is truly afraid is one of the scariest things possible. And there's the scene when Oliver Reed is sitting outside with no shirt on, enjoying a beer. And this limousine rolls up. Yeah. And his reaction, there's like the close-up of his, sw- of his face, yeah. is so heart-grippingly frightening right because you are seeing the man you are seeing a man on the verge of mania <laughs> he was already on the edge i mean he's already tense but his, things are already tense for him that but perf- that pushes him. that performance is so convincing and so unsettling to watch now it was a little off-putting that the chauffeur was listening to straight edge revenge in the car it was that, that's thought, what he's, oh, drinking he's, a gonna, he's gonna mosh <laughs> him out because he's drinking a beer is but yeah <laughs> that was good um and then, like the the the, uh, the the other scene with the chauffeur, where we want to talk about facial ex- facial expressions and terror, is when his aunt is she's she's um, I guess she's dying. This is on her deathbed when she sees the chauffeur as well. And there's that really iconic scene where he comes in and he the door swings open and he's just standing there, and they're both like, "Oh my god!" And then he shoves the casket in. Yep. 
the look on her face is also like, oh my god. I mean, I think that's a famous shot that that shot is used a lot for promo of the movie. In fact, in the most famous poster for the movie, there's an image of, of an old lady's face sort of superimposed over everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's her face from that scene. It's, I, I yeah, it's. In this this movie, one one of the things I really like about this movie is that this movie really does it excels at creating an atmosphere of dread and terror, uh, and it doesn't really it it's not scary per se in a very traditional sense. Right. But I do think that when it does choose to use unsettling imagery, that that chauffeur really does sum up like if you're going to have one thing in a movie that's going to be something you think of as traditionally scary, that chauffeur is. It's one of the best. Yeah. Um, hey, one sec. Hey, did you need anything or you're just coming down to hang out? Okay, that's fine. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure I wasn't ignoring you and when you wanted something. Okay. Hey, everyone, that you heard my baby. That was my <laughs> baby. Who was going, ah, it wasn't just me making noises because Justin's points were so good. Oh, they were very good. Um, he was making such good points that I just started going, ah, ah. Um, no, I mean, it, 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 like that—that's that's one of the things I really wanted to hit on when 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 talking about this was the the way this movie really creates um, that sense of just like every single moment of this movie. There are no safe moments in this movie. Like no. you never feel safe. Um, and the two things that I think really nail that and and really make it that way were the music and. Yeah. The way this movie shot, I don't know if it's like a certain film stock or a certain filter they put on it, but everything looks like kind of, kind of gauzy almost. Yeah, it makes it look like almost dreamy and like ethereal. Uh, but it is punctuated with some brutal moments. I mean, you know, spoiler alert for a movie that came out in nineteen seventy, whatever. Yeah. Um, the climax of this movie, you know, the, basically Oliver Reed has finally won out. You know, it took his fucking aunt dying. Yes. Uh, and a bunch of other crazy shit. But finally... Also, his son almost dies in front of him, too. That's yeah. worth pointing out. And he cannot do it. The house doesn't let him move. And he's like... Oh, oh, and then he finally, like... Uh, yeah. So they're they're at the end of the rope. And so he's convinced the wife to leave. And she's finally like, yes, we can leave. She goes up to say bye to the mom. Which, if you've... At, by this point, if you've been paying attention, you know this is the wrong... Yes. This yes. is your looking back at Sodom moment. <laughs> so this is a bad. I get that reference. This is a bad move. Yeah. So she fucking goes up. She doesn't come back. He goes up to find her and discovers that she has finally made the total turn. She is the mom. She's fucking glowering at him. And she's so pissed off at Oliver Reed. What's so unclear, and I love this, is either he is driven so mad by this realization that he leaps out the window to his death. I choose to believe that. Or. The house has now so much power with this final transformation that it just fucking spits him out the window, or she throws him out the window because she's now a magical death lady. I, I fucking know. I think that I think that this was his this was his Stan Uris moment in the bathtub where he just he was just like I've tried to kill my son. Right. This thing from my past is haunting me. I've held my aunt. She dies. My wife is now. An old witch woman. Right. I know for the for a fact that there is something going on that I can't explain. I am done. Goodbye. And he just leaps out the window. I'm inclined to not say that only because I really don't think he would abandon his son. Like See, I, 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 th- I think even with the horror of that moment, I prefer the version where the house just 
this is the this is the final thing. Like the house is like this is the last power move of like, oh, you thought you were gonna leave? Nah, dog. You're this is that's not how this is gonna go. That makes Olive Reed more noble, so I'm gonna go with that too. Yeah, I, I just like that version of it. It doesn't matter because either way, he's fucked. He he's goes dead. out the window. It sucks. He but this is what's crazy. He goes out the window, which is a very soft seventies way to kill someone. Yeah. Just toss him out a window, like the fall. You know it's going to be gruesome, but we don't have to show it being gruesome. Yeah. But then the movie makes a decision for him to fall face first through the windshield mm-hmm. when the kid is in the car. Like this is what's so crazy to me about this movie because this is a PG thirteen horror film. Yes. PG thirteen horror film, right? I mean, it's not technically PG thirteen because they didn't have that yet, but it was eventually got rated PG thirteen. Yeah. The point is, is that it's not an R horror film. My man goes out the window, he goes into the goddamn windshield, blood pouring in, and the kid sees it. Kid runs out in horror, and then the fucking uh, chimney Chimney falls falls on on him. him. Yeah. To me, what's what's interesting about this film is that it has moments like that. That the movie is moving not at a intense pace. It's taking its time. It's developing a sense of eeriness. But then when it has those crescendo moments, like when he tries to basically murder his son that's not like a light moment it's not like a goofy moment like that is dark it's very dark when the aunt dies and the chauffeur shows up that is fucking dark like it it, in other words yes it is not a i would say roller coaster of terror the entire time but the moments that the drum beats so to speak yes the crescendo moments they fucking hit and they hit hard and it's like oh god i just you spend most of this movie it just this is what a good horror movie is. You spend most of this movie where you have the feeling that nothing is going on right now, but right around the corner, at any second, some terrible shit could unfold. Right. That is how a good horror movie is. And again, there's not a lot of uh, scary imagery in this. There's some, like, unsettling... I mean, the, the chauffeur driver is, yes, this is terrifying, but there's not, like... There's not the uh, the poltergeist. There's not the guy in the mirror yeah. pulling his face off. There's not the the thing in the doorway. There's there's the none of that. There's no poltergeist in this movie, but it still manages to maintain throughout the whole movie this feeling of just again. You, there's no at no point does any you do you, you feel safe watching this movie, which is a fucking accomplishment. I really think that a lot of this is carried by Karen Black and Oliver Reed, like. And that's no offense to the son. It's no offense to the aunt. What is her name? Again? Is it Bette Davis? Bette Davis. Yeah. yeah. No offense to her. She's, she's she's great. She's great. And when she goes, when she's dying, she doesn't really go crazy, but she's losing it at the end because she's literally dying. Why? Because the house is eating her. Like it's like not clear. She's yeah, just yeah, dying. Yeah. Um, I think the house. Is, I I think the house is killing her to get to right Oliver right, Reed right, and his right, wife. Right. Yeah. Point being. Um, all those performances are pretty solid, but really Oliver Reed and Karen Black are like making this movie happen. Absolutely. And it's their chemistry that's making it happen, and it's their willingness to buy into what could be played for laughs. Yeah. At no point is their performance like campy. It's never. And it, like, I'm saying that knowing Oliver Reed can be the campiest. I mean, my man <laughs> is like, oh, I am Oliver Reed. Yeah. And like, nah, dog. He sells this role in every aspect of it. The crazy parts and the mild parts. The parts where he's like just investigating in a very sort of, hmm, what's going on here, you know? And the parts where he's fucking like 
upset. Yeah. You know, like he he's for real in this movie. Um I think early on, you know, Burgess Meredith is kind of creepy. That kind of works a little bit. I kind of like that, you know? Yeah, but I mean, he's like <laughs> It's funny cuz this is going to be so obsessively specific. If you've seen Rocky 2, Sure. The sure. scene where they're like, they're like, it's <laughs> your, right. Your preferred Rocky. My preferred Rocky. It's right when they're watching the 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 on the on the projector of uh, Rocky's first fight, and um, he's going. We need speed. Speed's what we need. And he's walking towards Rocky, and his eyes. He's like, speed is what we need. We need speed. Greasy, fast, lightning, Italian speed. The sort of weird mania that he has in his eyes when he's saying that, that's every line he has in this movie. Like, he doesn't come off as, like, curmudgeonly, right. you know, former boxer with a heart of gold who doesn't really know how to express love. I mean, it was a little weird when he was yelling at the house, you ain't hungry since you got that belt. <laughs> it was pretty weird when he yelled, like, he's like they was good, but they wasn't killers. I, uh. I 100% can't remember any Burgess Meredith line from any Rocky movie other than, you ain't been hungry since you got that belt. That's all I remember. I just said my favorite line when he's like talking to him in Rocky 3. I don't don't remember anything. Rocky 3 was like, eh, they was good, kid, but they wasn't killers. Not like this guy. He's talking about Clubber Lang. I know. Yeah. Um, So here's something interesting. We've talked a little bit about this on the show, and we've done a series of movies where we haven't been able to talk about like subtext or... Like a lot of the movies we've done lately have been sort of like, like the Oids episode. There's nothing to talk about. It's just like <laughs> there's, there's the Oids. third episode in a row. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, we've had a series of films where it wasn't much. What's interesting to me, I've talked about this before, but in case you're new to horror business, you know, a lot of these kinds of movies, modern haunting movies, yeah, modern supernatural movies. The idea is you have someone who is very modern which means they don't believe in this horse we don't i it's sort of like what i was saying about ghost stories mm-hmm. it's i don't believe in this stuff i don't believe in it the superstitious oh this superstitious, superstitious claptrap yeah. and then their lack of belief gets them and the idea there i mean unless we're talking about william peter blatty chances are whoever wrote that is not some secret christian guy who's like i'm gonna show everyone that not believing in things <laughs> is a bad idea yeah what's what it's actually about is an inner i think at least is an inner insecurity that like maybe we aren't as advanced as we think we are maybe we aren't as modern as we think we are so when this movie starts off you might be seeing it go that way like okay alvarita is going to be the rational one yeah he's going to be like i don't believe it and karen black is going to be the hysterical woman who's more in touch with like the primordial past and she's going to be like no it's this it's a witch or it's a ghost or it's whatever yeah and he's going to be like i don't believe in any of that and then, <laughs> by the time, vapors. and then by the time he realizes it it's too late you know that's such a fucking cliche and so like the first First time I saw this movie, I thought, here we fucking go. Again, if I'm going to watch a cliche-filled, obvious movie, Oliver Reed, Karen Black. That's, that, yeah, let them Oliver, lead me down that path. He is the perfect vehicle for the rational man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that is not what this movie is. I mean, yes, he is somewhat rational in some ways, but the only rationality he really shows in the movie is the rationality of, why would anyone rent us a home this nice... <laughs> For this little buddy, and that has nothing to do with the super with the supernatural. That's just logic. He's just let being me, reasonable. Let me go ahead and tell you: if someone's like, "Here's my four story palatial mansion," yeah, you can have it for three months for nine hundred dollars. Punch that person in the face. 
They're setting you up for death. Drive a stake through the heart because they're a vampire trying to kill you. Yeah, clearly something is wrong there. But the movie doesn't set him up that way. That's not what this is about at all. The movie is about their inner turmoil. Um, It's about them as a family and the way that this house consumes them. And I think what's kind of going on as sort of a subtext is the idea of like the past about not being able to escape the past about the past sort of consuming us in some way yes the house is a literal manifestation of the past and i don't think it's insignificant this is a subtext that isn't i think made text in the movie but I'm wondering if there's a source material for this. Is there a story? I believe this is based on a novel because the burnt offerings, I don't know where that title comes from. Uh, well, I mean, clearly they're the burnt offerings to the house. They're, yeah, like they're, they're, offer, they're the sacrifice okay. of the house. Um, it's in the South, y'all. This is a, this is a, no, it's not in the South. I, I thought it was supposed to take place in the South. I thought it took place in like New York. Is that right? New York or California. Hmm. I'm not sure. But I think part of what's going on here is I'm sure that part of the history of the, this house that they can't escape is something tawdry, is something embarrassing or gross. Yeah. And we're going to see this more in The Changeling, and I'll talk about it more in Changeling, but how many stories are there in which um, rich people are haunted? Like... In the changeling, it's like rich people get to be haunted because they get to have tawdry past that follow them. And it's yeah. not like the poor don't have tawdry past, but you know, ghosts don't bother with the poor. It's only the rich that they haunt, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. In this movie, it's like there's something horrible about this house besides the fact that it eats them. There's some history and we're, we're given a picture of that, but there's no explanation for it because there's no time to, I, I mean, I don't get me wrong. I'm not critiquing the movie for not explaining it. I'm glad it doesn't. It works better because it doesn't. But I guarantee that novel probably has. Let me just story. double check and make sure that there. It, it was, I want to say it was based on a novel, but I'm not entirely sure. The the point being is that there's. I think. Um, yeah. This 1973. It was written by a guy named Robert Marosco. And does it say where it's set at all? Or it takes no? place in the extreme eastern end of Long Island, so like Maniunk, oh, okay. or not Maniunk, um, Montauk. Yeah, Montauk. That makes sense. So, um, still, there's this idea in which there's a, I, I guess, I mean, I'm sort of projecting this, but I think it's, I think it's sort of, uh, uh, coincides with other stories of this nature that, you know, old rich things have sorted paths. Yes. That there's something, you know, there's no home of this size with this much, um, going on that doesn't have a dark. Now, in this case, the dark is the house is literally going to consume you for its own good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, that to me, maybe unintentionally, feels like uh, an allegory in some way. I mean, this thing, this piece of beauty, but it's like mm, extravagant, self-indulgent. Luxurious. Luxurious. Yeah. Lives off the various people. it tra- And... My impression of all the pictures of the people who've died in the past, none of these people are rich-ass people. They don't look like to me. No, and they never... I don't think that Oliver Reed and his family are struggling, but I don't think they're, like, opulent people. You know what I mean? They're not, like, super rich. So there's a sense in which the house is consuming folks to maintain itself. Yeah. That kind of relates to the way that... um, 
luxury lives off the suffering of someone else. It, it feels like to me that that is yeah 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 that is again not that it's a literal allegory, but that that's the inner anxiety of the movie more than most haunting movies or movies where it's supernatural. It's not like we thought we knew so much, but it turns out the world's more complicated than we thought it was. Yeah, this is not that because at no point is Oliver Reed really in this situation like. Oh, I know. This is not. He pretty quickly is like, I don't know. It's fucked up. He's Something's too busy. He's up. too busy screaming and fucking <laughs> yeah, having true. breakdowns and driving in the trees to yeah, uh, yeah. try to rationalize any of this. But I, I bring that up only to say, like, I think understanding what it is that's moving the terror of a movie is worth thinking about, and I think that's partly what makes burnt offering so effective. I think. Not that I'm against it, but it, it gets a little old having every single supernatural movie just be that guy or girl who's just like well i don't believe in things like that and you know what i mean yeah like, yeah the fact that this movie's playing off of other anxieties i mean what as soon as you start talking about history then there's family history there's personal history i mean even using the chauffeur ties to this idea that like we don't escape our histories and no this, and, and this house is part of that. it's a it's we'll talk about it more when we talk about the changeling but it's it's a very heavy theme in gothic literature yep. and, and gothic films is that um the past always comes to collect and Mm -hmm. whether it's from the people who are involved in it or it's their descendants or it's just the people who are unlucky enough to be caught up in the, you know, proximity of something horrible. Like in this case, Oliver Reed and his family or dumb enough to think they can stay somewhere like that (laughs) for 900 bucks. Yeah. $300 a month. Yeah. Uh, This theme is that the past is inescapable and it always catches up to you. Uh, it's a little more heavy-handed in the changeling, but it's also here. Um, so yeah, I do think I, I do think that is 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 a um, sort of an, un- an underlying theme in this movie that isn't. I think this movie goes more for uh, just straight up fucking scares than it does with any kind of subtext. Sure, sure, sure. sure, um, sure. But the subtext of the past consuming uh, us, quote unquote, is is, is there, um, and there's. Again, that like you said, I kind of like that. There's no, we don't know the motivations of these of this siblings. No, it works a lot better. We don't know. Like, I'm really glad that at no point were they like. It turns out that there was this family, the Allersides, who have. There've always been a brother and sister here, going back to the days of the Civil War. Yeah. yeah like I'm really if they, if they I really think that would have like cheapened it. Right. But instead, we're just met to these brother and sister who were fucking creepy who were just creepy like yourself. and they're, they're just that's it and the, and that the handyman dude who they meet too seems as clueless he's like i don't know i just fixed yeah it. he's he's know. he's a uh he's what you call it um he's like the renfield of the situation yeah yeah all right well let's so, take a break yeah we're gonna take a quick break and then when we get back we're gonna talk about 1980s george scott vehicle the changeling filmed in 1979 filmed in 1979 released in 1980 really 1980s I say that only because it feels so 70s to me that I always want to say it's a 70s. It does feel very 70s. All right, we'll be right back. Yep. Within this old house live two residents. One of them is John Russell, composer, professor. The other has been dead for over 70 years. Claire, I'd like to talk to you about the house. Did you die in this house? How did you die? Whatever it is, 
He's trying desperately to communicate. What is it in that house, Claire? What is it doing? Why is it trying to reach me? something of the senators. He wants it back. Talk about 1980s, but filmed in 1979. The Changeling, directed by Peter Madoc, starring George C. Scott, Trish, I can't even remember, Van Develle, Melvin Douglas, and Gene Marsh, written by Russell Hunter. This budget was $600,000, which is impressive, uh, and grossed over $5.3 million. Uh, the plot of this is we meet George C. Scott, who plays... Uh, what's his name in this movie? I don't know. George C. Scott is himself. Uh, he loses his wife and daughter in a tragic traffic accident. Uh, and then he moves to this... It's supposed to take place in Seattle, but I think it's shot in... Like, Denver. But it's this giant house. It sounds familiar. It's this big house. He moves there. John Russell. John Russell. So, Mr. Russell, he moves to this... Uh, this mansion out, you know, on the outskirts of Seattle, uh, to you know, kind of collect himself and get away from everything. And then he starts to there's this he starts to again there's this mysterious stuff that's happening. He starts hearing these noises. Um, he starts seeing weird things. Um, he consults a psychic, and eventually it kind of comes out that the house is haunted by the spirit of a dead child. Not just the spirit of any dead child, but. The spirit of a dead child who was sort of, um, I guess, tricked out of their inheritance. I mean, they were murdered. But uh, it turns out that this dead child is it has the same name as a famous senator um, who owns the, his family owns the house. And it turns out that the senator was actually, I'm convoluting this and not explaining it well. The owner of this house back in the early 1900s killed his six-year-old son and then hid the body, replaced it with an orphan said, oh, this is my son, he's back, and he's healed, because the kid had, I think, polio or something. And uh, that changeling, that's where the title comes from, grew up to be a famous senator, and I I, I guess this the spirit of this dead child is sort of like uh, using George C. Scott as like a vehicle to get his just due. Yeah, I mean, I 
the first time I heard of this movie, I didn't know what the term changeling meant. So it seemed like a weird title for what is basically a ghost story. But changeling is actually a, a, a superstitious term for a child that was believed to have been secretly substituted by fairies for the parent's real child. Yes. Uh, you could also, uh, if you're a fan of Mike Mignola, there was actually a really good Hellboy comic where they consult Hellboy. To to get rid of the changeling. Oh sure, yeah. And he's yeah, like, yeah. there's like this normal child. He's like, I'm not fooled by you. And the parents are like, it's just our baby. He's like, that's no baby. And he like pulls out like an iron bar, and the baby starts swearing at him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, yeah. um, so the the idea here is that um, the, you know, again, as we've discussed, rich people are monsters. And <laughs> John Russell is not a monster. George John Russell, got- to be, okay. John Russell though is not the issue here. John Russell is, uh, let's call him nouveau riche. He is an artist. He is a composer. Yes. And he has gotten whatever money he has from his work. From which, the sweat of his brow. Which, don't get me wrong, it makes him an educated and possibly soft man in some ways, though George C. Scott couldn't play soft if you gave him a million No, w- w- one of the things we were joking about was uh, these two movies, the, 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 the raw... We here at Har Business do, do not subscribe to traditional ideas of masculinity. Sure. But Oliver Reed and George C. Scott, if you put them in a room together... And then somehow could distill the atmosphere and inject it in your veins. You could do whatever you wanted. You could wrestle a bear. You could ride a sandworm in the wastes of the desert. You could do anything. So what I was saying before, though, is that uh, one of the things that rich people are obsessed with, besides their own power and the blood of the poor, is uh, maintaining their legacy. Yes. So the idea here is what's at stake is the legacy of this family, that they have a child, the child is sick, they can't take care of the child. Um, and rather than jeopardize the legacy of the family, because they if if the child dies before the twenty first birthday, right, they don't get this thirty squirty billion dollars right. or whatever. So you know, off the kid, replace him with an orphan. Yes, raise the orphan as your own, as the as the actual child, and then they just live with this thing. And and the idea is that here's this guy who has all this authority and power, who is a mover and a shaker in the world and it's all built on a lie and it's not just built on one lie it's built on a murder it's important to note that the senator himself is unaware of this but he's still going to pay the price yeah which i mean but george it's interesting at one point when george c scott calls him out on it this guy is like legitimately upset because as any if someone came up to me and said like your father is not actually your father. I'd be like, what are you talking about? I'd be mad too. But the re- the thing that really, really gets under this guy's skin is when Georgie Scott says, all of this is a lie and none of it is yours. That's when the guy's like, get the fuck out of my office. Right. And that's when he's like, you know, that's when this, this dude starts to lose it is when it's not when his family's connections to one another are called in the question it's when his legacy is called in the question that he really starts to lose it right the idea i think is is um again uh that that there's something morally corrupt about this family you know whatever you want to think about that and the way that's transferred to this um gentleman is that he couldn't possibly hear the truth no. There's no way he could know the truth because it wouldn't just, again, hurt his feelings or hurt his relationships or, or whatever, hurt his image of his parents. It would jeopardize his authority. Yes. And that's important. Yes. And, and that's made clear throughout the movie. Uh, you know, not that he's in a lot of it, but the parts where he's in it that even if he is a magnanimous person, which is questionable, he 
values his authority. Yes. He values his position. He values his power. And he couldn't possibly give that up, regardless of the tragedy that leads him there. Exactly, yeah. So uh, oh, I want to talk about, I think one of the things that's interesting about this movie, it's like, it's a slow burn. Yes, very slow burn. It's a movie that, if you remove the beginning of the movie, right, it's a movie that I think you could put in a category of horror that is appropriate for younger people. Oh, yeah. Because there's no violence, really. There's some creepy things that happen. Aside, some supernatural from, aside from the father drowning his child. Right. There's that part. You know, it's pretty messed up. Yeah, it's, it's pretty it's, rough but to it's watch. Not that, it's not like a huge focus. But I actually think the beginning of the movie is one of the darkest mm-hmm. beginnings of any kind of movie, even for a horror movie. And it feels, again, we've talked about this before, my vision of the 70s as this like dark, despondent, not nothing says nihilism to me more than burnt orange, basically, is what I'm trying to tell you. Like any, We've talked about this before. Yeah, as soon as you see oranges and browns and tans. Earth in tones. A, in a, earth tones in abundance, I think something fucked up is going to happen. Liam just gets a- anxious anytime he sees the, like he sees like wood paneling and he's like, oh, Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is, as we said, George C. Scott is a composer um, and there's a tragedy and because of that tragedy he moves across the country and he's trying to start his life over and the turns out where he moves is haunted and that's or whatever so we could have started the movie the movie could have started with him at a funeral yeah it could have started with him just getting off a plane and packing the story you know packing his stuff even yeah packing his there's, there's an incredibly effective scene at the beginning of the movie where he is watching uh this woman pack up his stuff and clean up and there's a ball that comes bouncing, and the ball causes him to remember his daughter. Yeah. And that is, in its own sense, a brutal scene because it's emotional, and it's about his suffering and the tragedy and all that. That's all there. But that's not how the movie starts. The movie starts with him and his beautiful wife and his beautiful daughter on a snow trip, and their car breaks down, and he walks across the wilderness to the phone booth, and he's on the thing, and then they just drag out this long, extended scene where you fucking know his family's going to die. And just know. As soon as you see the car swerve a little bit, Mm -hmm. you you don't know anything about this movie. The car starts to swerve on the road, and you go, oh. They're going to die. Oh. And then the way it's shot is brutally effective yes the car there's a truck and the car swerves out of the way it slams in the back of their car and their car clearly crushes them and even though you know it's a cut and that no one was actually crushed the cut is done so well that you just know that's it they're dead i also think it's 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 telling that he is trapped in a phone booth when this is happening which sounds funny which sounds ridiculous but i think like you're watching it and it's sort of like very few times in a movie has the audience been effectively put into a character's shoes. Yeah. As in this part, when he is 10, 15 feet away. Yeah. And he cannot do anything because he can't get this door open. And as the audience, you're watching it like, oh, no, don't let this terrible thing happen to these people. And then it happens, and you're just as helpless as he is. And then we see him sad, and he's in New York, and clearly New York is wrong, and he goes to Seattle and whatever. So, therefore, that tragedy which we felt so now viscerally yeah is going to color everything else that happens in the movie as he learns about uh the ghost and the family and all the things that go on he's going to inject all of that and we're going to inject all of that with his own suffering and his own and to be fair the ghost fucks with him yes the only thing he brings with him 
that's reminiscent of them. Like that's a tough. He she has this hockey field hockey ball, mm-hmm. right? And that's the same ball that he in the beginning of the movie sort of sets off this memory. Yeah, he puts it rather than having it taken away with their stuff, he puts it in this desk, and the fucking ghost. Bounces the ball down the steps. So Dorsey Scott, uh, okay, this moment, how good is this too? That Dorsey Scott goes, Oh, you're gonna fucking with the ball? This is what we're fucking doing with the ball? Into I'm gonna the take the ball, I'm gonna go to the bridge where I'm sure all the murderers of Seattle have thrown their guns. It's literally the scene in a gangster movie where you're like, I can't believe I shot that guy. Well, we better throw the gun yeah. off the bridge. He throws the ball off the bridge, he gets back home. Not only is the ball back, but it's wet. Yeah. Like, like, y- you know. It's a magic thing that happened. It, the the ball could be not wet. It could be a new ball. It could be whatever. But the ghost is like, oh, here's your soggy ball. Yeah, that I went to the river and fished out. I got your sock ball. That scene when the ball first bounces down the stairs mm-hmm. is, um, there's a lot of talk about, like, if I said to you, what's the scary scene in The Exorcist? Oh, some, there's so many. Probably, um. Okay, if you were to ask a quote unquote civilian what the scary scene in The Exorcist was, okay, at this point in two thousand, at this point in history, what would they say? I don't know. Spider walk scene. Oh, I wasn't thinking of the Redux, but that's okay. what I'm saying. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You and I were like, no, we saw that when we were kids. So yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, we were like, what, nineteen, twenty years old when that came out. Yeah. That scene's not all that scary visually. Right. It's not. It's sh- when I first saw it, I was like, oh, okay. Wow. It fucked me up. It's, it, it fucked me up. Now I watch it now and I'm like, it's not that scary. Sure. The scary thing about that movie is, is the second before you see Regan coming down the stairs, you hear her feet pattering on the rug. That is so scary. Yeah. That is so nightmarish. And yeah. I think that this scene because you hear the thump captures that, down the and I don't mean it's not like a ball tapping. I mean they really amplify doom. this ball like doom. boom, boom, doom. and it's like. What is coming down the stairs? What is right. this? What are we going to see? Right. And then he looks up and it's his daughter's ball. And then it's like, it's sort of like, I, I think they must have weighted it down because when it hits that final thing, it doesn't bounce. It just stops. And right. it's so, ugh. Yeah. And then when he comes home after throwing the ball in the river and he like shuts the door and he turns around and it bang, 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 right down the bottom of the stairs. And then there's this shot where it's like a POV shot. It's like, What's the word I'm looking for? It's like it. It's a uh, like a false. Like he looks tiny, but the ball looks massive. Right. It's like shot from right behind the ball, and he's right. like looking down on it. And it's it. It just it. It just goes to show. I think it's a perfect representation of like, oh, this guy has entered into the world of. He stepped into something that he doesn't right. fucking understand, and it's gonna make him. I mean, the, the whole point of the movie, it seems to me, partly is that. Um, there's been this sleeping need for... I mean, this is behind every ghost story, right? Yeah. There's no haunting, or as far as I know, there's no good haunting story where the ghost is just like, look, I'm an asshole. I didn't want to be dead. So now I'm just not dead. I'm just, just bored. Gonna, I'm just going to fuck with you because uh, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. There might be some stories that sort of lean that way, but usually those sort of fall into like a, a demonic thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's almost, the conjuring too is almost like that, but then yeah. you reveal that it's the ghost who was just like, I'm just lonely. Yeah. I'm just lonely. And yeah. it's like, he was being used by a demon, but I, uh, yeah. Yeah. But, the, but so in other words, the idea I think, uh, of a lot of these stories is that, um, you can't escape justice again. Let's get back into this. There's a Christian thing behind everything. So yeah, the, what this is, is, uh, you think that the past is gone and that it's not going to come and get you, but it, it is, it is. Yeah. And for him, it's literally like, look, 
you probably just want to live your life and you don't want to be a tool of this vengeful spirits justice but fuck you like you're gonna do it and i'm just gonna make your life hell you had nothing georgie's guy has done nothing to this child completely the senator hasn't really done anything wrong uh, but but here's the thing someone's got to pay someone's got someone's got to pay i mean okay look there's a part of me the first time i saw this movie all i was focused on was just experiencing the movie and i actually found the ending sad yeah this poor senator and he's going up and like yeah 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 he's he's not the greatest but he's gonna suffer for something his he didn't choose he's just an orphan boy he's just an orphan boy that idea is not only that's another classic idea in like gothic literature but that idea that the sins of the father will be revisited upon the sins of the son son quote unquote is one of the more prevalent themes in uh, Lovecraft's fiction is that there's this sordid family history that happened and they got away with it. But now generations later, these forces that are whatever they are, are showing up and they don't care that you yourself didn't do anything wrong. It's just that there's a tab and you're picking up for it. Right. And I think that's kind of, terrifying because it's 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 like you're dealing with like uh you know it's something that can't be reasoned with it's just something that's out for out for justice or revenge or whatever and uh it it, there's that's what it that's what that's what it all boils down to is that the true terror is that there's a tab and you know sorry but Here's the thing, though. On this view, and this is definitely reflective of our current political stance. Okay. Station. I did not find it sad. No, I'm not saying it's... I wasn't like, oh, that no, poor senator. But that's what I'm trying to tell you. The first time I watched it, it was sad to me. It yeah. was like a tragedy. Like, this evil is so bad. What happened was so bad that someone has to pay. And even though it's not the senator's fault, he has to pay. On this sec... Uh, this is my second? No, it's not true. I've watched it a few times. But on this viewing... Um, I thought, you know, the idea that you can't escape that evil, that, 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 that thing that you did is so evil that it leaves a mark and that mark, that tab will be paid at some point could also be a source of like, I wouldn't go as far as to say hope, but it's sort of the last desperate hope of people for whom there is no hope, you know, for whom whatever. And, 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 and in that sense, I wonder if that's why, again, I said this before, but this movie really made me think of it. My first thought when I was watching it this time was this idea, and I expressed it to Justin, and I, and I still think it's true. You could see a lot of ghost stories as being, in some sense, class-related, in that no one haunts the row home in shitty London. You know what I mean? Like Occasionally, you'll see those stories. But yeah, like, yeah. The classic haunted house stories. It's always fucking rich people, man. It's yeah. castles, it's mansions. And I and I get part of that is just a very human thing. Big places that are empty are scary. I mean even the a Christmas carol. They yeah. go go after a rich guy. And even and I and I think part of this is related to the class thing is related to the idea that like former glory, right? Yes. It's very rarely a new mansion. It's always a mansion of rich people who used to be very important. They did something awful, and now they're in their decline, and they're haunted by their past. Yeah. And I get that. And and so as I was thinking about it, I was thinking about that, like, the class expectations of that, that there's something – it's almost it's almost a privilege 
that you are so important that your sins lead to haunting because <laughs> poor people just die. Yeah. And their sins just are tawdry and gross and they don't get to be haunted. They're yeah, not yeah. important enough. And and so part of me sort of sees it that way and that's sort of my class warrior aspect of it. It's like, oh, there's, you know, the fucking, the, the rich people get to be in ghost stories. But as I was thinking about this movie and then I started thinking about more ghost stories, the idea of a lot of these hauntings is that you did something wrong and you have to pay the price. And even though I don't think this is a revolutionary thing, like that ghost story won't help poor people to get organized and change their situation. It is, though, a valve. So think about a bunch of people sitting around telling a story. They know the clamp it's up the hill. I went with the river hill. But That's it, a terrible name for rich yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what I mean? Like yeah. uh, the fucking Fords up the hill. Yeah, yeah. They own everything. They own our lives. They own our future and our past. They own any I, anything we could have in the thing. And we know that they're bad people. We've heard the stories. You yeah. Know, cousin fucking and whatnot. Yeah. Well, you know, I heard when sally ford died is the ghost got her you know that i think there's a sense in this sort of story of like yes it's it's a funny thing about wealth that you think you're so important that you get to be haunted but it's a hopeful thing for the people who live under you that it's like when when you're that rich there's a feeling that you can do anything yeah that there is no justice and we're seeing that right now this is why i'm thinking about it is because there's a feeling that the whatever the tr- people in the trump administration do they're just gonna get away with it because they're rich people and they'll always get away with it but what a ghost story like this gives you a little bit of hope is is like yeah but like one of their kids is gonna get polio or <laughs> someone's gonna get hit by a car yeah. or, in other words i think ghost stories Again, they're not revolutionary stories. They're not liberationist stories. They're not stories designed to organize people to change their circumstances. But they are stories that kind of make you think maybe the whole world isn't set up to fuck you. Yeah, maybe there is some sort of karmatic engine at work. Right. That will eventually give people their just due. And I think that's related in some sense to Christianity. And I think it's definitely um, a not very helpful thing in the sense of like... um, it's really not going to encourage you to change your circumstances maybe in some ways. But on the other hand, I kind of like it. It was comforting to me in this scenario, in this way, because I'm in a situation where I am regularly thinking a bunch of people who should pay some price are not going to pay some price. Yeah. Watching the Senator. And, and also the first time I saw it, I was really looking at the Senator as maybe not a total innocent, but mostly innocent. And then this time I'm watching it going, I don't know, he's kind of a dick. He's a senator. He's had to fuck someone over horribly to get there. Yeah, and he really he really is unwilling to hear the truth because he's unwilling to give up his thing. And again, that's not to say this is a this is not a movie about justice. Let's be clear about that. This is a movie about revenge. The ghost is getting revenge. Would you say this is a movie about justice being replaced by revenge? <laughs> oh, now I gotta put that song on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, you do. Um Yes, I know, 100%. I mean, it, it, it's a small point, but I think it, it, it relates to what you were talking about, about this being a very gothic story, that uh, a lot of those gothic narratives end up being tied to this idea of the people with the most power and the most privilege are also the most um, irredeemably gross. Yeah. And they've done a bunch of shit, and that shit will haunt them forever. Yeah, but I, one thing I, I like that separates this movie from other sort of gothic stories is that uh, it, it's sort of like our protagonist in this, um, you know, John Russell, 
he's not collateral damage in all of this. Right. He is a man who has gone through the sort of the forge of tragedy and comes out on the other side to be put into these extraordinary circumstances where he's at the center of all this. And ultimately, I mean, we don't know. The house fucking burned down. A senator died. Um, he is connected to the senator because like dozens of people witnessed him screaming at the senator at the airport. So we don't know what happens after this. But it, it, I, I do like that this is a story where ultimately the protagonist, um, he wasn't like completely – there wasn't a complete innocent who had a – who had – didn't have this like sort of tarnished back history. Sure, sure, He sure. wasn't – like he didn't get hit by like the you know the shrapnel of all of this. I agree with that. I mean, his life is definitely turned upside down, torn but... apart. I mean, he's he's never going to sleep a sound, uh, <laughs> through the night ever again. But but I do think also this is a movie that uh, plays a little bit with that theme of the rational man. Yes, but it doesn't push it too hard. That like at first he's very much like, uh, but he kind of gives in after a little. That's bit, actually though. one of the things I read in, in in a few of the reviews. I think Roger Ebert in his review of this movie said that its biggest downfall isn't George C. Scott's performance. Okay. He does a great performance. He's a, a god. It's the fact that at no point do we feel any sort of threat because George C. Scott at no point is scared. Like mm. there's a part where he's like shook, but he's never like. Like he's hearing these noises in the middle of the night, and he is at no point like. There's no like um. What's the word I'm looking for? What's a good example? Like there's no uh. There's no Caroline in the poltergeist moment where no. something happens where he's always like, oh, there's a noise upstairs. I better go. Oh, there's a hidden room. Like this whole movie, even when this shit happens with the ball coming down the stairs, he's still not like... He's angry more than he exactly. is. Exactly. He's still like... You don't feel like he's ever... When he an, almost falls off the stair, off the balcony thing. Yeah. He, he looks scared. He's shook. But he's not like... He, like, George C. Scott is like... He plays it relatively unflappable. So for you, the major difference here between these two movies is that Oliver Reed convincingly portrays that he feels terror we yes, believe he is. i am seeing a man who is who is who is his reaction to something he doesn't understand is terror whereas george c scott maybe because i mean okay this could be the limits of george c scott's acting george c. scott's never been afraid of anything so he doesn't know how to portray fear <laughs> or it could be this was a character choice this man has been so mm, like scorched over by this loss that he's incapable, That's fair. he's incapable of feeling fear. All he is is angry. Look, I just want to live in the mansion and be left alone. Yeah, okay? like what's the worst you're going to do, and Ghost? you're fucking with me, and I just want you to leave me alone. And in, and, and and that transfers a little bit, and he, he takes it on. He takes the cause of this murdered child. He takes it on as his own cause. And my initial response to that is to say... Well, it's because of the death of his child, and he's like, but I also think he's just angry. Like he's just like your shit is fucking up my shit. Yes, and I don't want it to fuck up my shit. Yeah, and so I'm just coming after you, so I get left the fuck alone. In other words, it feels like um, that reminds me of like a, a of a John Constantine moment. And I don't mean that by the movie Constantine. Mm. I mean the, the Hellraiser comic book. I was gonna say you're talking about Constantine starring Keanu Reeves. No. Okay, that's the movie you're talking about, though. Yes, it is. Okay. But, I mean, I'm thinking more of the character in the comic book. Okay. There were times in the comic book, and there are other characters like this in other stories. There are characters who take on a supernatural cause out of annoyance. Okay. I don't want to deal with this. 
but uh, you're here and I'm here. So I guess I, I, I got to take care of this, this problem. Yeah. There's a little bit of that. But I agree with you, and apparently with Roger Ebert, that while I actually find that very interesting and compelling for George C. Scott to play in some ways, it certainly makes this not a great horror movie. No. Because the only person who's ever afraid, really afraid, is his his love interest gets uh, uh, freaked a couple times. Mm-hmm. And then the senator, who you kind of are like, good. Like, yeah. You should be fucked up. Like, but that's it. He's he mostly is just like, oh my god, leave me alone. What do you even, want? Even even when there's the scene where there's like a séance and the medium yeah. is like, my name is John, and writing all the shit. Like his girlfriend is just like, oh my god, and he's just like, oh, his name is John or Joseph, and he's dead. Cool. Oh, what's this? What are they write? Like he's more just like, what the fuck is going on here? Not like, not like, oh my god. But again, I don't think that was. I will disagree with Ebert in that. I agree that that limits the ability of the movie to be an effective horror movie. I don't know that it's a an incorrect or poor character choice. Not at all, because it's a man. Again, you it said it comes across that way when he is. Ye- he there's literally a scene, y'all. If you haven't seen this movie, where he's yelling at the house. Like you've seen <laughs> people get upset. Like that happens in Poltergeist, where there's this like sense of frustration. Of, yeah. Like, why is this even happening? But with him, it feels more like that's his motive. Is like, what the fuck do you want? He's literally screaming. In the stairwell, looking up and screaming, "What do you want?" And it's it's like that's it right there. Like this. I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which if uh, this is the question everyone is asking the universe. Yeah. What do you want? Pretty much. Just you know. Just but not all of us me. are being fucked with the spirits of dead boys who've been murdered by their father. Right. 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 But I. I so in other words, there is something about that that is very compelling, actually, and that I like. But um, I will say. People who've told me, like, oh, the Changeling, it's really scary, I think it's creepy. I think some of what the happens and some of the haunting stuff is very effectively creepy, but it's hard to feel fear when our main dude is just mad the yeah. whole time. He's just so mad. He's just so pissed off at the ghost. leave me alone, ghost. Jesus. I, I do think a few of the things about this movie, uh, aesthetically wise... Aesthetically wise, mm-hmm. um, aesthetically speaking, aesthetically speaking, um, that really creeped me out. Were the uh, I took some notes. Um, anything involving the wheelchair, yeah. Anything involving that wheelchair was 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 was, was terrifying. Yep. Um, especially the scene. There's a shot where it's like it's sort of. It's like a shot where they they basically took a camera and then put it on like a dolly and then pushed it through the house really fast and filmed right, it. Right. I don't know why that it, this is a really weird comparison to make, but it kind of creeped me out the way that Tetsuo, the, the end of Tetsuo the Iron Man creeped yeah, me out. Yeah. That really like rapid like through yeah, the streets. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then like what was the other thing? Like the the shot where they're 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 in the seance. Sure. And they're all sitting at the table, and the camera's like panning around. The camera's like panning around the people at the seance. I don't know why, but that really, uh, that really created, that really put me in the moment. For I mean, uh, George C. Scott obviously was not in the moment because he's just angry, but it put me in the moment of these people making contact with whatever, whatever with whatever was in this house. Um, I, I I can't explain why, but just the shot, the single shot of them around the table was just really effective for me. And then. Um, 
the shot at the there's a shot at the cemetery uh and the camera's like looking down it's like shot from high up mm-hmm. and again i can't really put into words why i was like that struck me but it did um i when the senator is having his like moment that basically transports him to the house yeah that got to me for some reason that that shot where, the where, that he, where he actually projected to the house yeah yeah the yeah. light is like coming off the the um necklace at him and all yes that stuff. also when they find the body in the well oh yeah 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 it's the, a hand the, the shot down the well yeah. like or up the well at them the fucking child's nightmare yeah of the little bo- like whole like because basically there's there's a house that this family once owned yeah like beautiful like like oceanside house and he's like there's a well in there there's a child in the well and then like the little girl who the whose mom lives there she's like well she's been having these nightmares about a little boy coming out of the floor which first off that image alone is is god awful and then when it actually shows her nightmare the way her nightmare is shot she like wakes up and she's like looking and it's just like her face and you hear like a like wood breaking and snapping and then the the camera cuts to what she's seeing and it's like if you imagine a wooden floor with the it's cut out and then there's a like water lit from below and a little boy in the water like uh, submerged it, terrifying it's so frightening and the scene where the you know the father drowns his son is also just that I mean that whole by default fucked up. That whole part is intense. Yeah. But again, I I still think the most intense part of the movie is the very beginning of the movie. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That that uh actually my first note was that 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 title shot where they show the title where it's like it's him in the in the the phone booth just being like he just aghast like looking on helplessly and then it just freeze frame in the changeling. It's like in blood red letters just yeah. changeling. It's so good. Well, I love George C. Scott. I think we can just say both these movies are awesome. They're so good. I, again, maybe you're maybe these aren't your style. Maybe you just want axes and blood mm. melting people. Maybe that's what you like. And I'm not going to judge you. That's fine. But if you like things that are creepy, you like hauntings, you like things that are brown earth tones. <laughs> these are movies for you. If you like movies that really work and earn yes, fear, yes, you yes. will love these movies. Also, if you like strong men... <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> if you like men who 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 will chop wood yeah. and 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 draw water yeah. and 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 drag things. <laughs> if you want to see George C. Scott responding to uh utterly terrifying situations with a sense of frustration and anger, George C. Scott responds to this haunting presence the way an angry uncle responds to a despondent nephew. Yes, this is me yelling at my niece at Blackbird when she won't finish her pizza and she wants a cupcake. And I'm like, what do you want from me? <laughs> <laughs> You're at the end of your rope. Uh, he's just, he's, you know, you know. just a side note real quick. I, I posted this on Twitter um, about George C. Scott. And I said, you know, can we just take a moment to appreciate his role in The, in the Exorcist 3? I think his best moment in the, in the third Exorcist film is when he's like, ta- he's like, his in-laws are staying there. Yeah. And he's like talking about how they have a carp in the, in the bathtub. <laughs> and he's just like, and I just hear this fish all night swimming back and forth, back and forth. That is that frustration at such a mundane thing is perfectly George C. Scott. Yeah. And it carries over to this movie, except, you know, he's not 
frustrated in a Monday thing. He's frustration because, you know, he had to watch his wife and daughter die. And now a ghost is bothering him. The very fabric of the universe is rending in the name of justice. And George C. Scott is really put out He's by just it. angry. I mean, because he's got like, okay, my wife and child are dead. And now I have to deal with a ghost. Like, God damn why? ghost. Hey. Uh, thanks for listening. Yeah, that was that was these the I cannot recommend these movies enough. I cannot recommend these movies enough. Um, we would love to hear from you if you check these movies out, if you like them, if you like what we had to say about them, uh, and also if you have other movies you think we should be watching. Maybe you want us to do Judgment Night or Time Cop or Prom Night Two. I'm looking at VHSs that are in this room. We're recording it right now. Fortress. Fortress. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't know why I have these tapes. It's fine. Point is, we would love uh, you to give us recommendations, feedback, even if you hated what we had to say. Um, only The only thing I will say is if you have nitpicky, sort of like, oh, you missed this at detail, you can go ahead and tweet those at, uh, Papa, John, at Papa John. Yeah, just that's, let, that's just, our other uh, Twitter just account Just let we him have. know. Yeah. Um, or if you have problems with our politics, you can let Papa John know. Yeah, let Papa John know. So thank you for listening. On Twitter, we can be reached at the horrorbiz six six six. If you have any, if you want to email us, I think Twitter is probably the best way to get a hold of us. But if you want to email us, we're at the horrorbiz at gmail biz with a z. Um, you can go to www.cinepunks.com for more episodes of this podcast and episodes of other podcasts like our flagship podcast, Cinepunks. Like my man Brendan Foley just started season two of. Black Sun Dispatches. It's good. It's it's which is his weird. If you like weird storytelling, that's like Stephen King's Dark Tower, but even like creepier. You're gonna like this. So go yep. check that out. There's also like the Mandate. There's a lot of good stuff on there. Um, there's also information on there on how you can donate to our Patreon. If you, out of the goodness of your heart, if you choose to do that, you can check that out. Uh, we're also available on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you are on iTunes, it would be delightful if you were to leave us a review. Five stars. Five stars. And if you do, somehow get a, you know send send us a message on Twitter, and we'll we'll send you some we'll send you some pins and some stickers for being so kind. Uh, as always, rate, review, subscribe, and um, I guess until next time, we'll talk to you later. Okay, see ya. Peace. Don't talk. Just listen. Son, there is no hope, only mystery, wonder, and danger. Black Sun Dispatches on the Cinefunks Podcast Network.